Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we had our our annual congregational meeting. Some of you were here for that. Uh, Not all of you, I imagine, have the booklet in front of you, but in that booklet on page four, uh, there was a summary of our ministry teams. And in the lead up to that, It says these words, at proclamation, we believe that all are welcome, all are needy, and all are needed. Our ministry teams provide practical ways for our members to live out our mission as a church. And then it had that printed. Empowered by the Spirit and all of life, we will joyfully praise God, sacrificially love all people in deed and truth, and faithfully proclaim Christ to the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. And as I reflected on that, I wondered, are we doing that as a church? Are we fulfilling that mission? Are we doing that well? And more specifically, with this passage in mind today, are we actually sacrificially loving all people in deed and in truth? Are we growing in love? What does that look like? How do we do that? Paul gives us some insight on the importance of love and how to love here in Romans chapter 13. He uses that word love five times in these three verses. And here Paul shows us the priority of love. He tells us what love does or perhaps more accurately what love does not do. And then he emphasizes that love is the fulfilling of the law. So as we consider these three components of love today, I pray once again that we would all grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that our love for one another would abound more and more. Let's begin with the priority of love. In verse 8, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now many will look at this passage and think about money. The passage is not talking about money. It's not a proof text against borrowing or taking out loans or having a mortgage. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 22, God's word gives us instructions for lending and repaying. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So if we want to make any application from this passage regarding money or borrowing, it would be this. Pay what you owe. Pay your loans off. Fulfill the repayment plan. Now we do know the Bible does say in Proverbs chapter 22 that the one who borrows is slave to the lender. So a wise principle of financial stewardship is this. Keep your debts as small as possible and pay them off as fast as you can. 
But the main point here is not that you should never borrow, but that you should always love. Love is the perpetual obligation. All day, every day, the people of God are to be a loving people. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 16, let all that you do be done in love. So part of what he's saying here is this, other debts, other loans that we may have, they can be paid off. A school loan, a car loan, a, even a mortgage for a house. You can one day rejoice or celebrate that that loan, that payment plan is finished. It's done. You make that final payment and you breathe a sigh of relief and you give thanks because you don't have to pay that anymore. But that never happens with love. You can never say, I've made the last payment. I don't have to love anymore. Love is also not something that someone has to earn from you. Or that you, as a child of God, would give reluctantly or begrudgingly, like many of those loan checks that you pay. No, love is to be graciously and freely given by the people of God. As Jesus has loved you, you also are to love one another. And beloved, though you are called to do this, you cannot do this apart from Jesus. You know, our natural inclination, the way that we are born, is to put ourselves first put ourselves ahead of God, to put ourselves ahead of others. So maybe you come home from a long day of work and you're tired, you're hungry, and a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend needs help, they want your time, and your first inclination is not to say yes. It's not to serve, it's not to love. Or perhaps you have children and they are demanding your attention, your energy, and you want to or you had planned to give that energy somewhere else the response of love is not always the immediate reaction or you have a neighbor who who needs something maybe they need a ride somewhere maybe they need their driveway shoveled it's not easy to give of your time and your resources to help especially if that would require you to change your own plans so what will help us what will help us to love in these Day-by-day moments. Well, people often say, well, just remember the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So think in your mind, what would I want others to do for me in those day-to-day situations? How would I want others to treat me and then do it? Don't love in just word or in talk, but by what you say, but in deed and in truth, by what you do. Now, there's some good counsel there that, that can help But that's not foolproof. It's not enough simply to know that love is the priority. It's not enough simply to think, how would I want to be treated? And then try to treat someone that way. It's not enough to know that we are always to be loving. That the debt of love is never paid off. Beloved, we need Jesus in these day-by-day moments. We need the love of Christ to compel us, and to control us. You will never love others as Jesus has loved you if you are not filled 
with the love of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, in a sense, we're doing it right now. We're doing it right now in gathered worship as we make use of God's ordinary means of grace, the word and sacraments and prayer. As we come and during this time right here, right now in this space, we behold the glory of Jesus. We meditate on his love. We are keeping in view the very mercies of God. And we are being transformed in these moments by the love of Christ. How would you describe the love of Jesus? You do not have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. Isn't that how we often think about whether or not we should love someone? Have they earned it? Are they worthy of this love? Do they deserve this love? But beloved, Jesus loved you when you deserved the opposite. In Romans chapter 5, God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of Jesus is freely given. Not a single one of you has earned it. You've not earned an ounce of it. This is how Jesus loves you. Not because you deserve it, but beloved, aren't you glad that he loves you? So receive and rest in his love freely given. The love of Jesus is also sacrificial. It is costly. Beloved, how do you know that Jesus loves you? Not only because the Bible tells you so, but because Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. We heard it earlier in 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. What's that mean? It's, it means this is how we see it. This is how we, we can understand and know that Jesus loves us. What did God do? God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we know the love of God because God sent Jesus to do something specific, to take away our death and give us his eternal life. So the love of Jesus is costly. It is sacrificial. He gave everything. The Bible says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. This means that when Jesus died, he died. Yes, he gave his life. He gave his all. But when he died, he suffered the holy wrath of God. Your every sin was laid on Jesus. He who knew no sin. Jesus who always did what pleased the Father was made to be sin for you. He himself was treated as if he was the one who lived your life of rebellion and disobedience. And all for love. Because he loved God, his Father, and because he loved you, beloved as Jesus has loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So first, here we have the priority of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Second, what does love look like? What does love do? Or, what does love not do? Verse 10, Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And that's Paul's summary. After he has listed some of the Ten Commandments for us in verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So all the commandments that Paul lists here, we could describe them uh, as negative commands or prohibitions. You shall not. Don't do these things. If you do these things, if you commit adultery, if you murder, if you steal, if you covet, you do wrong. You do harm to your neighbor. So this is one way to describe love. It's one way, it's one thing that love looks like in daily practice. Love does no harm, does no wrong to a neighbor. That wrong or that harm must be defined by God and his word. We don't define it. The culture doesn't define it for us. Our inner feelings don't define it. Our governing authorities don't define what this wrong or this harm is. So we can learn some of what this is just by considering these first two commandments that Paul lists. First of all, he says, you shall not commit adultery. It is wrong. It does harm to have sex with someone who is not your spouse. But this harm, this command, goes beyond just the physical act. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that to look at a person with lustful intent is adultery. So to view another person as the object of your desire, to fantasize about them, to watch pornography, or to live with someone outside of marriage, which is so common in our day, referred to as cohabitation, to act like you're married when you are not. These are forms of adultery that actually harm people, that do wrong to a neighbor. So these thoughts, these actions, they are sinful. They are the opposite of love, though they are often done in the name of love. They're the opposite of love. To commit adultery in any of these ways is a failure to love. It is to not love your neighbor, but actually do wrong to them, to harm them. Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You hear that language again? Don't wrong your brother. Beloved, love does no wrong. It does not commit adultery. And Paul also says you shall not murder. Well, it would seem obvious to us, right? It it would seem obvious even to those who do not know God that to murder someone is to do them harm, to do them wrong. But again, Jesus will extend this commandment to the heart behind the extreme outward action. So Jesus will equate 
sinful anger or harsh words or a lack of forgiveness with murder. We fail to love people. We do them wrong when we act in anger towards them or when we use our words to tear them down, when we speak harshly to them. We fail to love people. We do them wrong when we become bitter when we refuse to forgive, when we hold on to offenses, when we do not seek reconciliation. We fail to love people. We do them wrong when we are violent, when we engage in physically abusive behavior. That kind of behavior is unacceptable anywhere. It's unacceptable in the home, whether it's parents towards children or children towards parents, a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband. It's a failure of love, and it dishonors the God of love. We fail to love people. We do wrong. We do harm to our neighbor when we support abortion in any way. Abortion is a failure to love. It's the taking of a human life, and it does wrong. It does harm, not only to the precious child, but also to the father, the mother, the extended family, and to society as a whole. Now in saying this today, I I want to make sure that I offer both the comfort and the call of the gospel because I know this is such a difficult, sensitive issue. But beloved, if you have been involved in abortion in any way, Jesus is the only one He is the only one who can forgive your sin and heal your suffering. The blood of Jesus shed for you can indeed cleanse you. It can make you whole. It can take away your shame and your guilt. Maybe you're a father who has lost a child to an abortion against your will. Or maybe you're a mother who was pressured into an abortion in some way, was lied to about it or deceived. The gospel, the love of Jesus is what you need. And so we, I as a pastor, we as a church family, we want to proclaim the love of Jesus to you, not just in a sermon at church, but in our community of love together, in deed and in truth, with compassion, over the long haul, to walk side by side with you until Jesus welcomes us home and wipes away every tear and makes all things new. And while we walk with you, we also know that it may require us and we are willing to provide any outside help or counseling you may need to help you find true, lasting hope and healing in Jesus. So we must give the comfort of the gospel And whenever we would address sin in any way, especially sin that has such devastating, long-lasting effects, we want to point you to Jesus. The comfort, the hope that only he can bring. At the same time, we must also give the call of the gospel. We must know and speak the truth about abortion so that all those who grow up in this church family All those who are taught in this church will see it 
for what it is. And join us in prayer that this evil will come to an end in our lifetime. And we pray also that knowing the truth will restrain our sin. I pray that none of you would ever in the future make this decision to wrong another person in this way, but instead would love your neighbor as Jesus has loved you. Beloved, love does no wrong. It does not murder in any way. Now, love does more than avoiding what is wrong, what is harmful, but it does not do less. This is not the only characteristic of love. It's not the only way that you can recognize it, but it is one way. Love does no wrong. Instead, love seeks to do good to others. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will say, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So we've seen the priority of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. We've seen what love does not do. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now third, the main point that Paul is making in this passage is this. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul says a version of this three times in three verses. It must be important to him. Once each verse, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then again in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what does Paul mean? How is love the fulfilling of the law? And why is this so important that he repeats it over and over and over again? When Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law, the law that he is referring to here is the Ten Commandments. He's made that clear by referencing them for us. So love is fulfilling of the law, the Ten Commandments. And one pastor says that the words Paul uses, fulfilled in verse 8, summed up in verse 9, fulfilling again in verse 10. Those words refer to the attitudes and the actions of love that correspond to what the commandments require. So it's not just an outward action. It is that, but it's also an inner attitude. So when you love your neighbor as yourself, this love in action flows from what you're thinking in your mind. It flows from your attitudes, your thoughts. It flows from a mindset, or more specifically, it flows from the mind of Christ, which is in you, beloved. And these attitudes, these behaviors, then correspond to what the law, what the Ten Commandments require. So that's what Paul means, but why is this so important? And why does he mention the law here? So many people, so many religions, Perhaps you today are doing this. So many people, so many religions base their relationship with God on what they do, on the law. If I do what is good, if I'm a good person, if I obey the law, then God will love me. Then I will certainly go to heaven. But that's not how it works. That's not the purpose of the law. When God gives us the law, yes, 
It reveals to us his character. Yes, it reveals to us what's right and what's wrong. And yes, it does indeed show us how God wants us to live. The problem is we can't do it. We cannot live this way. You know, we may not murder someone, but who of you hasn't been angry with some of you, someone? Who of you hasn't spoken or at least thought a harsh word against someone? We all have. We cannot live up to the standard of God's law. And the law has no power to make us live this way. The law can't change your heart. It can't change what you think. It can't make you into a loving person. It cannot give you life. It cannot make you right with God. What the law does is show us our sin. It shows us our guilt. It shows us that we fall far short. It shows us that we all are needy. So in Galatians, it's many Romans, if you didn't know that. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if we are going to have eternal life, if we are going to be forgiven and loved, it won't come from our law-keeping. It won't come from our ability to love. It must be given. And it must be given by someone who bears the curse of the law that you deserve. And someone who obeys the law in a way that you cannot. And who is that? Beloved, that is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you know what that means? It means that every human being in the world needs Jesus. Every human being in the world needs the same Savior. Every man and woman, every boy and girl needs Jesus' blood and righteousness. Needs their sin washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Needs the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus credited to their account. This is the only way that anyone has eternal life. Through faith in Jesus. His death that actually did pay for your sin. No matter how wicked or evil or awful you think it may be. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and his life to provide righteousness. No matter how big that gap is between the obedience God requires and what you are able to do, the righteousness of Christ covers it. There is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to be righteous. There is no other way to fulfill the law. And that's been the message of Romans 1 through 11. We've seen our guilt, and we've seen the grace of God given to us in Christ that takes away our guilt. And now in Romans chapter 12 through 16, where we're at in our current study of this book, we're asking the simple question, how do we say thanks? 
How do we say thanks for such a great gift? What does this new life of gratitude look like? What does it look like for people who know that by faith alone, all their sins are forgiven, all their condemnation is removed, and all of God's righteousness in Christ has become their righteousness? Beloved, that's your life. What does your life now look like because those things are true? How do you live the Christian life? How do you love? Who do you pursue? What do you focus on? Do we now focus on the Ten Commandments? Do we focus on the law? But maybe it's in a new way, right? We now know, okay, I can't do that in my own strength. So I gotta, I gotta give that up, thinking I can do that on my own. I'm not going to try to obey in my own strength anymore. But now it's just a change of attitude. Now I'm God-dependent. I can obey by his power in me. Is that the focus? Is that how we love? Is that what Paul means, that love is a fulfilling of the law? No. Now there's some good in that. There's some truth in that new mindset. Yes, we do have the power of the Holy Spirit with us now. But our focus on the law is not, I can do better now. Instead, yes and amen. I am forgiven by faith alone. Yes and amen. I have the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith alone. Yes and amen. I now have the Holy Spirit living in me by faith alone. So now, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, you continue to walk in him. Romans chapter 7, Paul wrote, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So beloved, when Christ died to bear the law's curse, you died in and with him. You died to the curse of the law. And when he obeyed in death to fulfill the law's demands, you obeyed in him. So in that sense of standing before God, you have already obeyed the law. This is your glorious union with Jesus Christ, beloved. This is Romans 5, 6, and 7, which we had the joy to study earlier. So the law is not your focus anymore. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it's not important. It does show us what God is like, shows us what's right and wrong, shows us how he wants us to live, but it's not our focus. Romans 7, 4 goes on. You've died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. Beloved, you belong to Christ now. Anytime we have a baptism, that's what you're to remember. Remember whose you are. You belong to Christ. He's redeemed you from the curse of the law. He's made you his own. You are his. So Paul is putting the risen living Christ where the law was. Once you were alive to the law, but now you belong to Christ. So in the place of the law is a person and one person only, not you, but Jesus Christ, your savior and Lord. So what do we focus on? You may think it's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. We don't focus on the law. We focus on Christ. 
We fix our eyes on Jesus. Moment by moment, we look to him, to his deliverance, to his help, to his guidance, to the beauty of his goodness and his truth and his love, to the joy of being loved and known by Jesus and then knowing and loving him in return. Beloved, if you want to love others as Jesus has loved you, don't look at them and don't look at you and don't look at the law for motive or for power. Look to Jesus. You are united to him and your union with Christ will produce this love in you. Back to Romans 7 verse 4 again. Paul had written, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, what's going to be the result? In order that we may bear fruit for God. And what is that fruit? That fruit is love. So now, beloved, your focus, your pursuit, every day will be Jesus Christ. And you will look to him for everything that your soul craves for everything that you need and from your union with Christ that you remember moment by moment by fixing your eyes on Jesus as your gracious Savior, your almighty King, your sovereign Lord, your glorious treasure, you will love people. Beloved, Jesus will be our focus and love will be our fruit. And yes, that love does fulfill the law. Not perfectly in our lives, but Christ alone has done that for us. But truly, truly, why? Because Jesus Christ has truly made you new. He's put his spirit in you, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So I asked a question at the beginning. I'll ask it again. Beloved, will we grow in love this year? As a church family, as individual followers of Jesus? There's only one answer to that question. Yes. Yes and amen, I believe we will. Why? Because we're united to Christ. Because we belong to Jesus. Because he has made us his own. And because as we gather for worship each Sunday to feast on the glory of Christ, you will be spiritually nourished by his body and his blood. And we will spur one another on to fix our eyes on Jesus. And thus, we will be spurred on to love and good works for the glory of our risen Savior and coming King. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us love one another.